Radical, episode 210. Ladies and gents, welcome to Radical. I'm your host, Shane Hazel. Thank you guys for being here with me. Got a awesome episode for you guys today. We continue the series, Bitcoin is Not Democratic. Uh, this is number four out of the five-part series, and I hope you guys enjoy this one. We're going to look at um, in this uh, this installment by Alexander Svetsky, Alex my buddy, man, um, these are these are absolutely amazing in terms of content and getting people to see and, and, and think about um, the the different types of governments that we've had over uh, the course of human history. And this this one installment takes a look at everything from uh, the the kings and queens in terms of monarchies to uh, anything that is an ism, the the fascisms, the socialisms, the communisms. Um, and we've looked at obviously demo, uh, democracy in the past or democratic republics or representative uh, governments, whatever the case, right? And there's obviously a common theme, but um, this one kind of takes a look at it and then obviously offers the understanding that solution in terms of Bitcoin uh, and how it lends itself to a much better, much smaller um, type of government in terms of localism. Uh, possibly anarchy, anarchism, voluntarism, uh, and, and anarcho-capitalism. And I know a lot of those things mean a lot of the same things for you guys. Obviously, um, Alex really dives into the the definition, right? And and so um, it'll you know this article is going to give you that as well as give you a better idea of these definitions. A lot of times that are thrown around in. Uh, the, the liberty crowd, uh, including agorism, for that matter. So, you know, this is a this is a great time to learn. Uh, great article, and without further ado, we're going to get to it. The future on a Bitcoin standard. Bitcoin is not democratic. Part four. The death of democracy is around the corner. What will replace it? As Bitcoin changes the very fabric of society, we'll need new modes of governance and coexistence. Alexander Svetsky, March 22nd, 2022. With each new installment of this series, the Clown World simulation takes it up a notch. Part 3 kicked off with the stupidity happening in Canada. Part 4 is now being written right in the midst of the geopolitical clusterfuck in which every side is lying, maneuvering, and propagandizing while innocent individuals who just want to live in peace are being terrorized, displaced, and killed. Anyone who still has faith in modern governments of any kind at this point is beyond help. This madness is all a function of the, quote, representative state. I don't care if it's Russia, NATO, the U.S., the EU, or Ukraine itself. None of these entities are innocent. Only individuals and families living within their bullshit borders are. Vladimir Zelensky is just as guilty as Vladimir Putin. He and his recently discovered $1.2 billion in an offshore account are prime examples of how democratically elected representatives simply use the very people they're supposed to serve for their own ends. Whilst innocent people die, he's posing for photos, making deals with other politicians, and literally acting with Sean Penn. While his people are locked out of the financial system, he and his cronies' salaries are being paid by wealth confiscated via taxes from those same people. None of the decision makers on any side are actually being displaced, killed, shot at, or experiencing the destruction of their livelihoods. The talking heads, politicians, and so-called human rights charlatans, like Garry Kasparov, are openly calling for war because they have no personal skin in the game. 
The only human rights these frauds believe in are the ones they get funded to turn into propaganda. And they'll play hawk over social media like little keyboard warriors in the hopes to spark a larger war so that they can point the finger and say, see, I was right. Absolute egomaniacs. Hey, Kasparov, if you want war, how about you go fight it yourself? This continued madness is all a function of rulers and their pet presenters experiencing no consequences for their actions. If anything, the only consequence is the personal enrichment. The ends which they play all of these games for just happen to include you and I as expendable pawns. And when the price for the one's enrichment is somebody else's blood, you can be almost certain that blood will be spilled. The following passage from Masim Talib's Skin in the Game shines the abundantly clear light on this and reminds us why the current version of madness in Russia and Ukraine, or for that matter, any other modern war, not only exists, but why it's in fact a historical aberration. Quote, Owning one's risk was an inescapable moral code for the past four millennia, until very recent times. Warmongers were required to be warriors. Fewer than a third of Roman emperors died in their bed, assuming those weren't skillfully poisoned. Status came with increased exposure to risk. Alexander, Scipio, and Napoleon were not only first in battle, but derived their authority from a disproportionate exhibition of courage in previous campaigns. Courage is the only virtue that can't be faked or gamed like metrics. Lords and knights were individuals who traded their courage for status, as their social contract was an obligation to protect those who granted them their status. The primacy of the risk-taker, whether warrior or, critically, merchant, prevailed almost all the time in almost every human civilization, exceptions such as Pharaonic Egypt and Ming China, in which the bureaucratic scholar moved to the top of the pecking order, were followed by collapse. Nassim Tlaib. We'll expand on this in the monarchy section below, but suffice it to say that you won't see these representatives bring the battle to their doorstep. They'll be sending emails from their very cushy home offices in the Hamptons while drawing a salary paid for by you and receiving donations from the cronies currently profiteering. In fact, that's the worst part of this entire madness. Modern governments continue to play these games because we're not only stupid enough to assign them that right but we also pay them for it. Should we make it through the great filter, our descendants will shake their heads at the stupidity that non-economic democratic governance was. I look forward to an age where responsibility and consequence are reintroduced, where power is concentrated and distributed, competitive nodes and democracy is but a memory. I have faith that Bitcoin will accomplish that and change the course of human development. Forever, Laura, forever. Monarchies. Skin in the game is what makes monarchies superior to democracies, or any other modern representative-run state. The point illustrated above by Tlaib makes a resounding case for monarchy being greater than democracy alone, but let us delve further. 1. Monarchies, in the more traditional sense, are run by a private property owner, albeit a large one. As a result, their property is their capital, and its preservation is naturally incentivized. Yes, a moron monarch may make poor decisions and burn through the capital in exchange for present cash flow, but the base tendency is otherwise. 
The converse is true for representative democracies, as we've outlined in parts one and two of the series. Two, the hereditary nature of monarchies is also an advantage. Its localized concentration of power more easily held accountable, and when combined with private property incentives, should produce more just leaders than the popularity contest winners in a democracy who will lie, cheat, steal, and do anything to get into power. Three, numbers one and two above combined with skin in the game incline monarchs toward longer-term decision-making for the preservation of their private property, for their economic viability, and the continuation of their hereditary lineage. This lower time preference and proximity to economic consequences create a superior environment for sensible monetary policy, taxation, and legislation, notwithstanding the inherent stupidity of all three. These factors remind me of a passage from Hans Hermann Hoppe's Democracy, the God that Failed. Quote, Historically, the selection of a prince was through the accident of his noble birth, and his only personal qualification was typically his upbringing as a future prince and the preserver of the dynasty and its status and possessions. This did not assure that a prince would not be bad and dangerous, of course. However, it was worth remembering that any prince who failed in his primary duty of preserving the dynasty, who wrecked or ruined the country, caused civil unrest, turmoil, and strife, or otherwise endangered the position of the dynasty, faced the immediate risk of either being neutralized or assassinated by another member of his own family. On the flip side, with a strong education and a princely upbringing, a monarch was far more inclined to be a functional ruler than the kind of character who rises through the political ranks of a democracy, Hoppe. Note that like Hoppe, I neither suggest we go back to monarchies nor defend taxation, monetary policy, or legislation of any kind. I merely present it here to compare the natural tendencies present in monarchies versus democracies or other representative governments. There is indeed a spectrum of insanity, and whilst monarchies can score high points with idiot rulers, institutions like democracy will always score highest. There is much more to explain on this topic, but further examination is beyond the scope of this essay. To do it justice, you should take the time to read Hoppe's book in its entirety. My goal is simply to look at the elements of emergent models of governance, monarchies being the most organic of all, and see how we can adapt them to a world in which Bitcoin exists, a world where taxation cannot easily be enforced, monetary inflation is impossible, monetary policy is a historic joke, legislation and bureaucracy are expensive, losses can't be socialized, and where citizens are customers, where fiscal prudence and responsibility are virtues that territory operators exhibit not through words, but necessary actions because there are no bailouts. This is what I'm interested in, and what we'll explore as we proceed in this fourth installment. My last words on monarchy in this section I shall leave to Frank Herbert, the visionary author of the Dune series. Quote, The pattern of monarchies and similar systems has a message of value for all political forms. My memories assure me that the governments of any kind could profit from this message. Governments can be useful to the governed only so long as inherent tendencies toward tyranny are restrained. Monarchies have some good features beyond the star qualities. 
They can reduce the size and parasitic nature of the management bureaucracy. They can make speedy decisions when necessary. They fit an ancient human demand for a parental, tribal, feudal hierarchy where every person knows his place. It is valuable to know your place, even if that place is temporary. It is galling to be held in a place against your will. This is why I teach about tyranny in the best possible way, by example. Even though you read these words after a passage of eons, my tyranny will not be forgotten. My golden path assures this. Knowing my message, I expect you to be exceedingly careful about the powers you delegate to any government. Letter of the Tyrant, The Stolen Journals, God, Emperor of Dune, by Frank Herbert. Socialism. We've spent an entire series on democracy, so there is no need to explore that model any further. Let us instead turn our attention to socialism. We all know that socialism's many incarnations have failed, irrespective of whether they start with the C or the F word. Many of us even know why it fails, again and again, i.e., it's a ridiculous, anti-life, pro-entropy idea. Despite this, there's an entire cohort of people out there calling themselves progressive Bitcoiners, and even socialist Bitcoiners. It's baffling, so let's clear something up. Socialism cannot exist on a Bitcoin standard. Bitcoin moves social order and operation onto an economic standard, and the idea of a socialist economy is simply a contradiction in terms. In order for an economy to exist, there must be calculation. In turn, there must exit both private property and decentralized information flow, the highest fidelity being the pricing engine of the free market, to derive the values from which to make these calculations. In a socialist setting, this is impossible because allocations of resources are preordained and there is no room for arithmetic calculation for the purpose of better utilization or economization of resources, time, or energy. If no private property exists and no pricing can exist, then no form of calculation nor economization can exist, meaning we are squarely in the realm of politic. In that sense, socialism, communism, and their collectivist cousins are all forms of economic regression and reversion to a form of primitivism. They have no place on a Bitcoin standard, which is fundamentally economic and evolutionary in nature. Bitcoin is not political. It is raw, organic capitalism in action. It embodies both the static, e.g. immutable time chain, and the dynamic, e.g. mempool, and the market. It is chaos, which through an emergent, probabilistic process creates order. There is no central management or order by committee. The consequences of being on such a standard cannot be predetermined, nor can calculations be made for the economic actions of individuals constituting the greater system who each control the keys to their own wealth, their own private property. There are irreconcilable inconsistencies at every layer, and as such, there cannot be socialist territories at any scale beyond perhaps the Dunbar number. On a Bitcoin standard patchwork of city-states, we must think beyond these broken paradigms. Anarchy and Anarchism Anarchy, a.k.a. Quote, the law of the jungle, is simultaneously the least understood and most vilified of all modes of human organization, despite being the natural state of things. By virtue of living in modern cities under rule by government, 
people believe we've somehow transcended the jungle, when in fact all we've done is transform it. Just because we live in a status paradigm does not mean that those states do not compete on a macro-anarcho-paradigm, notwithstanding the push toward a centrally managed globalist state in which jurisdictional arbitrage and experimentation is eroded. The relationships between China, Russia, North Korea, the EU, and the US, whilst at times seemingly coordinated, are actually anarchic. They operate in their own self-interest and will coordinate when it suits their own geopolitical agendas. Only their coordination, or agendas, presuppose the forced compliance of their citizenry. In other words, they operate in the realm of anarchy, and we are forced to operate in the realm of slavery. The following is a quote by Juvenal, nested in a quote by Edmund Burke, nested in a quote by Benjamin Marks, editor-in-chief at economics.org.au, sums this up nicely. Quote, Even absolute government fails to escape anarchy. The supreme judge has no superior authority. He is in a state of anarchy. Every criticism of anarchy in defense of government therefore fails. For no one ever governs the governors, and we never really get out of anarchy. Yet, it is precisely for the combating of anarchy that government is defended. Edmund Burke called this the grand error upon which all legislative power is founded. End quote. Quote, It was observed that men had ungovernable passions, which made it necessary to guard against the violence they might offer to each other. They appointed governors over them for their reason, but a worse and more perplexing difficulty arises how to be defended against the governors. Quote, Who will govern the governors? End quote. Therein lies the big problem, and one that no amount of absolute government can ever solve. For the more absolute a government, the more tyrannical it becomes. So, if anarchy is inescapable and merely comes in different flavors, shapes, and sizes, what do we do? First of all, recognize that it's a natural state of things and that you've likely come into contact with it. Secondly, separate the organizing principle of voluntary adopted rules from the more controversial rejection of rulers. You'll quickly realize it's neither scary nor nuts. Your local Sunday farmer's market is a local example of anarchy, where self-interested vendors, irrespective of how friendly and altruistic they are towards each other, congregate to sell their goods without the need for some bureaucratic authority to tell them what to do. All free markets are the same, in fact. They stem from anarchy, and they find their own equilibrium without the need for some idiot bureaucrat to regulate it and get in the way. The question is not, how do we avoid the reality, but how do we live with it? The answer always lies in fostering stronger individuals, stronger communities, and allowing the market to drive innovation in the protection and the preservation of private property, the law. Human and the groups they voluntarily form are perfectly capable of doing so in the absence of a monopoly on violence. We've been doing it long before the state arrived, and will do so long after it dissolves. Bitcoin will once again enable anarchy at smaller scales so that humanity can flourish through competition and cooperation, not flounder through compulsion. Of course, as we make this transition, as is the purpose of the series of essays, we will want to become acquainted with the different flavors of anarchy and their modalities. To begin with, 
we have anarchism. As the name suggests, it is an attempt to codify anarchy into mode of coexistence. The core principle is that individual freedom can only be achieved if the power one can wield is limited to the power over oneself. The boundary of one's freedom is another's property, and those who try to assume power over others face expulsion by the individuals making up said society. The anarcho-capitalist variation is the same, except it emphasizes the central importance of private property rights, the boundary and limitation, and the capitalist process, the driver for progress. Of all forms, this seems to be the most logically consistent and practical. The anarcho-socialist version is like the three-wheeled vehicle that's neither tricycle nor car, that neither works nor is logically consistent. Don't waste your time with such stupidity. Voluntarism, concerned more with the interactions than power, is just the more acceptable version of anarchism. It recognizes that the free and functional society is dependent upon the free and voluntary participation of the individuals, constituting a principle deeply embodied in Bitcoin and exhibited at your local farmer's market. Agorism is a more activist version of the theoretical anarchist modalities, where all relations between people are voluntary, but people also engage in counter-economic activities to minimize what they contribute to the state in the form of taxes, license, fees, etc. I guess this is more of a transitional modality, and perhaps less applicable on a Bitcoin standard. We shall see. Note that the common thread in all of these logical consistent variations of anarchism is not the absence of rules, but specifically the absence of rulers. The distinction is so important to note. The cognitively functional proponents of anarchism recognize that all games and forms of organization require rules but they reject the idea of rulers who can change the rules, i.e. the elected or absolute kind. They know that the state apparatus necessary for such rulers to rule virtually ensures that the most adept criminals just coalesce around it. Once hijacked, they can simply change the rules in their favor or force others to adopt rules they've concocted. That is why stupidities like democracy, always end up working against the very citizens who voted for it. This is also why Mikhail Bakunin's maxim is so accurate. Where the state begins, individual liberty ceases, and vice versa. Mikhail Bakunin. Anarchy is just the natural voluntary organization of free, mature, responsible individuals who believe that the market can provide anything people need better, faster, cheaper, than government can in its vacuum of economic consequence. I know it's hard for some people to come to terms with the simple reality. Maybe it's because they're internally inadequate and secretly yearn to be told what to do, or perhaps it's the projection of their own desire to rule over others, or a blend. Whatever the case, people like Peter McCormick, who criticize anarchy and the non-aggression principle, by calling failed states like Somalia examples of libertarianism are moronic. Conflating the protection of private property rights with the state doesn't make you edgy or realistic. It makes you uninformed. The entire disagreement boils down to an inability to comprehend that an individual can defend themselves, 
nor that any other form of group or market emergent organization can protect and preserve property rights. Newsflash number one, individuals are their best first responders. Newsflash number two, the government sucks at protecting you. Newsflash number three, the cornerstone of libertarianism and logically consistent forms of anarchy is private property rights. The problem in Somalia is there is a complete absence. The necessary limitations and boundaries for peaceful coexistence are not present in failed states where pure chaos reigns. There is no capitalist process. There is no private property. There is only theft and plunder. The very evils libertarians and anarcho-capitalists stand against. So no, Somalia is not libertarian, not anarchism, not even anarchy. It is the blind, unhinged chaos of a failed state with no moral compass or rules. I must quote Frederick Bastiat here again, as I have in previous parts of the series. Quote, Every time we object to a thing being done by government, defenders of government intervention claim that we object to its being done at all. We disapprove of education by the state. Then we are against education altogether. We object to state religion. Then we would have no religion at all. We object to an equality which is brought about by the state. Then we are against equality, etc., etc. They might as well accuse us of wishing men not to eat because we object to the cultivation of corn by the state. End quote. Frederick Bastiat, 1850. A monopoly on violence, such as the case in Somalia, does not fix this. It just gives the biggest thug the guns and the legal right to use them, then devolves into institutions where those we want to protect ourselves from congregate. Instead of a robust society in which private property rights are first and foremost enforced by the individual and then protected by the market of competitive providers, we end up with a bureaucratic apparatus that uses its monopoly to encroach upon the very property rights it was instated to protect. An anarchist society is one which tends towards strength, resilience, independence, and responsibility. It is smaller, nimbler, and more values aligned internally. All the services the state provides, from regulation to licensing to judicial, policing, and defense, can all be better provided by competitive private entities who are accountable to the customer and the market. The only thing we do by centralizing these necessary services and bestowing their provisions to a monopoly is we give the criminals a crevice to initially hide, and then an apparatus to wield legally perpetrating their crimes. Localism. Localism is the natural antithesis of globalism. It is the idea that instead of one bureaucratic committee making decisions on behalf of larger and larger populations, the local bodies should govern local populations based on the unique cultures, values, and ideas of their local territory. In fact, I would include the unique terrain and resources of their local geography too. The end goal for globalism is that one committee decides everything for everyone on the planet. Brainlets think that this is a good idea because they have a view humans as linear entities to be plugged into their spreadsheet and simply shuffled around like numbers. Localism, on the other hand, assumes complexity is the standard and recognizes that diverse humans cannot be herded in one direction, under one directive, 
like mindless sheep. Localism is built around the family unit and projects outward to the tribe, e.g. extended family, neighbors, and then the community. By definition, it does not scale beyond that which is local because its mechanisms for trust are reputation and relationships. In other words, it has a natural limiting factor in that it cannot work for populations large enough for reputations to get lost. Restraints to poor behavior naturally emerge as a way to ensure you're not ejected from the local community or society. In distinct contrast, large territories that encompass millions or even hundreds of millions of people, where the potential looters do not know their victims and vice versa, the human desire to enrich oneself at another's expense is subject to little or no restraint. Democracy is the pinnacle of this anti-achievement. Democracy breaks down the family unit by replacing dependence on family bonds with dependence on the state. The government becomes the parent, the caretaker, the guardian, the nanny, the uncle, the aunt, and in time, your overlord. There's reasons why terms like nanny state and Uncle Sam have emerged to describe the apparatus of government. Democracy is anti-responsibility and attacks society at its very core and, most important level, the individual. When you remove responsibility, you transform individuals into infants. This process turns into a self-reinforcing downward spiral where the more infantile people become, the more they require a nanny state and the greater the nanny state grows, the more infantilized individuals become. This is what we're seeing in society today. The masses have degenerated beyond the status of even sheeple and become real-life lemmings marching right off of the cliff. Localism is a philosophy of responsibility, relationships, reputation, and robust communities disavowing both reliance and dependence on large-scale government institutions. It is not only more morally consistent because it allows humans to coalesce around smaller values, creating internal homogeneity, peace, and external heterogeneity, diversity, but it is... For similar reasons, the only economically viable way to operate a territory. It's like an extension of the thousand true fans idea from Kevin Kelly, or simply the idea of a niche. Niches are much more profitable. Mass market only remains viable insofar as machinations of the state create cotillion effects that enable zombie corporations and insiders to remain competitive by extraction, regulatory moats, and access to free money. Localism is the cure to globalism, but in order for it to be successful, there needs to be a cure for politics and statism first. There must exist unbreakable economic bounds, which were all held accountable to by virtue of their existence. I don't have to tell you by now what fixes this. Localism and Bitcoin are compatible. In fact, they're more than compatible. They're like blood and body or fish and ocean. For localism to work and not be destroyed by some bumbling bureaucratic fools or bad actors, the cost of defending one's wealth must be low and the consequence for non-economic, politically, or deranged, for example, behavior must be high and immediate. Localism is the natural state, but the natural state cannot thrive, let alone survive, when the artificial state envelops, consumes, and destroys everything around you. 
Localism and large-scale governance modalities, like democracy, on the other hand, are entirely incompatible. We will get to localism in the end. The world must and will fragment. The only question is, how do we get there? Will we still have the infrastructure we've spent centuries building still available to us? Or will we blow it all to pieces and wind up in a localist paradigm with technology no more sophisticated than the Amish? Or worse, my hope is that we fragment into city-states and transform the capital that is currently being wasted consciously. Local-scale government seems to be where optimal economic performance will lie, alongside containing an optimal number of people to achieve both economies of scale without the diseconomies of scale notable in large-scale cities, states, or nation-states. In closing, Bitcoin is simultaneously voluntary and essential. It is both chaos and order. It is physical and metaphysical. It's a living, breathing paradox on so many levels. It allows people to become sovereign over the product of their labor, arguably an extension of their property beyond their thoughts, ideas, body, and family, which comes with ramifications that were yet to truly fathom. It gives people a choice to create what they want with their wealth and experiment with new forms of cooperation, governance, coexistence, which will inevitably lead to both successful and failed experiments. We will simultaneously see anarchy, small-scale communes, new forms of hierarchical order, and quite possibly an age of modern monarchies, which we shall explore in part five. Some of you may want to prove me wrong and build a communist or socialist utopia on a Bitcoin standard one day. And by all means, if you want to go ahead and build a city in which you ask that the members share their wealth around by all the will of some form of centrally managed committee, go for it. I don't think many people will stay, but you're free to try it out. The whole point of Bitcoin is to make forced collectivism impossible. What succeeds in the end, I do not know, but based on the principles of what we've discussed in this series and the works by the greats we've quoted, we can make some assumptions. I want to close this out with something for you to ponder before the fifth and final installment of the series. The Mob I was in an Uber in Las Vegas last week, and the driver said the most interesting thing. There was a shooting at a shopping center nearby the location he was dropping us off at. He told us to be careful and then offhandedly said, quote, this would never have happened while the mob ran this place, end quote. I found this profoundly interesting. Here, clearly, a conservative man, probably in his mid-50s, pro-law and order, advocating for the mob? I asked him about who runs Vegas these days. He responded, and I'm paraphrasing, quote, the corporate mob came and took over from the old mob. The old guys aren't allowed anywhere near here anymore, and the guys who took over don't give a crap, end quote. This gentleman recognized the mob was an institution of law and order, and although he may not have articulated it this way because the OG mob was economically accountable, i.e. they couldn't print or tax their way out of a mistake, the services they rendered were far superior to those their broken government of Las Vegas currently offers. This is consistent with the idea that government is simply the biggest mob, 
with the most gun-welding thugs. They win not because they're the best, but because they're able to fund themselves through the most widespread forms of theft, taxation, and inflation, and obtain the subsequent monopoly on violence to solidify their power. Knowing this, the most adept criminals simply adopt the maxim, if you can't beat them, join them. This is why governments and legal monopolies of any kind are so dangerous. They become the very thing that they were instituted to protect us from. I later reflect on his comments, and it reminded me of James Dale Davidson and William Rees Mogg's sovereign individual. Throughout the book, they point out the rise of mobs and gangs against the backdrop of a falling state. As power structures crumble, new entrants emerge to fill those voids. I wonder what the changing world order will look like as criminals realize the ideal apparatus for theft is no longer the state. Will they rise up once again and muscle in? How will mobs form on an emergent Bitcoin standard? Will these territories be run, in fact, by economically accountable mobs who offer protection services at a fairer market rate than the current governments we are subject to? Will families that run these mobs resemble many monarchies? I don't know. But chaos will surely ensue until a new, stable anarchy is achieved. Until next time. Alright, that concludes part four of the five-part series from Alexander Svetsky. Bitcoin is not democratic. Um, obviously, we talked a lot about in this one, or, or Alex talks a lot about in this one, um, the different pitfalls that we see over time um, with different types of governments, what you know is and is not sustainable, um, where we get uh, all sorts of different uh, market feedback or market manipulation and perversion uh, from things like democracy or isms, uh, whether it's uh, communism, fascism, or whatever type of ism you've got out there. So to, to kind of sum this up, you know, this is what we talk about all the time. This is really bread and butter for libertarians. And this is why I'm so excited and absolutely just down for doing more and more and more uh, education on what Bitcoin is, what Bitcoin isn't. Um, and, you know, the, the, the paradigm shift that it is now pushing uh, around the world and I maybe let's just let's just stick on this for a, a few minutes you know and that's th this is what I see around the world right now I see people done with government done with their specific government people around the world have risen up and I mean the United States has been probably one of the calmest places during the last two years minus um, what happened a couple of years ago uh, in 2020 when, um, you know, the cities were, were burning down, uh, BLM was out there, you know, holding their quote unquote, mostly peaceful protest, right? Like most places in America have been, you know, um, fairly peaceful for that matter. Now I know crimes on the rise and everything else, but this is a function of people understanding that the state is so weak that they're not going to protect anybody, right? They're not going to protect your business. They're not going to protect um, your home, your property. They're not going to protect your family. They are wholly inadequate to do any of these type of things. So, you know, to, better to learn that now than to, to learn it later. But to see the world rejecting government, you know, uh, you know, 
the, the people of the world rejecting government around the world at this time, I think is one of the, the greatest things we could hope to see. And then obviously to give them a path out of this, to give them an economy, to give them a paradigm shift uh, down to localism is, you know, what we preach as libertarians all the time is like, here it is guys. Like this is, this is completely compatible with your, your local area, your family, your community, city and, and county really, right? Like th- this is, this is kind of how that works. And, you know, to, to see it, to, to understand that, you know, times get bad, you know, and you've still got a battery on your phone that you can charge from your car or whatever else you've got out there. Um, you can go down to the market and trade in Bitcoin. You can trade in gold. You can trade in silver. You can trade in barter in services or products, or you can trade, um, you know, in, in lead. Your choice, right? It's like it's it's your choice on how this happens. And that's the beautiful thing about divorcing uh, the state and money, right? Like the underlining theme here, get the state out of money, get them out of your banks, get them out of your wallets, get them out of your savings, get them out of everything that you do in terms of transaction with whatever monetary unit you've chosen as a best store of your life's work, your energy. I don't know. Like I see this kind of stuff. It's, it's plain as day to me. And you know, I get a lot of pushback. The thing is, is I've also gotten a ton of people in the libertarian space asking about this, asking for interviews about this. I've done more interviews in, I guess, the past few weeks because of people's natural curios- curiosity of Bitcoin, right? Like, it's still very early, ladies and gents. It's, you know, you, you might be 1% of the people um, on earth that have invested in Bitcoin, Maybe, right? And there's a very, very small percentage of people out there who can explain it, who can teach it. If you want a new job or a new career, you want to be in the space, you're early. You're very, very early to the space. Learn it. And if you hate what you're doing, get out of what you're doing. Go teach this kind of stuff. I guarantee you, if you teach it, you can probably, I don't know, um, depending on who you're teaching it to, you probably charge, you know, between 500 to $1,000 an hour, depending on your mastery of the situation and skills, uh, to point people in the right direction where they're, they're floundering, right? Like this is something that you can do. It's something that I'm telling you right now, I've thought about long and hard, uh, in terms of a, a very much a, a boutique tile style, I should say a boutique style of, you know, hands-on service to people, um, in the privacy of their home or wherever, uh, to teach them about this, where they get comfortable enough to make that first transaction to get into the Bitcoin space. Like I said, you're super, super, super early. Um, next week you're going to see like, there's things popping up all over the place. And I probably need to do a daily show, uh, early in the morning to keep you guys abreast of some of the news that's changing. But I mean, the IMF is talking about Bitcoin, the, the Australian government, as terrible as they are, um, are looking at an ETF spot price for Bitcoin that will start next week. So you're talking about no kidding, real investment you know, that a state recognizes this is, these are all huge deals. This is something that, you know, five years ago, even two years ago, I think it would have absolutely 
you know, painted smiles across the entire uh, Bitcoin uh, maximalist face, right? Like this is this is huge. The fact that all of this is happening, that states and international, um, you know, places like the IMF are not only recognizing the strength of this, but they don't know how to combat it. So they're kind of have they kind of have to be um, somewhat uh, open to the idea that this is happening and this is taking over. And the more they squirm and struggle, the less uh, time, effort, and energy there is uh, to get their own uh, their own savings put into an asymmetric asset or make it safe from the banks uh, and, and the governments and just the, the awful organizations out there that want to take it from you. So to see this um, in this great piece, um, it, it makes complete sense why localism is the way forward, whatever it is, whatever form it takes, uh, at least you can reach out and touch those people. At least you can put a band of people together when there's injustice and go remove those people from, you know, any type of power that they might have. But, you know, f- foremost, you know, and I, I think maybe we missed this in this article a little bit, um, is the idea that you don't need, you know, any of these things with the code that is Bitcoin, right? The, the code brings everybody to the space equally. It doesn't care where you're coming from. It doesn't care, you know, what the outside rules are. It doesn't care about any of that kind of stuff. It brings everybody to a table through a communications protocol. In other words, a constitution that man who, you know, like there's, there's, no, there's no men or women responsible for this, right? It's just, this is the code. This is it. So it's one of those things that cannot be manipulated by quote-unquote powerful people in the space to be unjust and and pervert the market signals and prices that come from it and that's huge we've never had anything like that what an opportunity what an amazing time to be alive man like i don't know i love it i i thank you guys for for you know coming down this rabbit hole with me I and mean, this is this is obviously my passion in life right now this is the vehicle that i see that is going to do the most for liberty in our lifetime um bar none it's not the libertarian party it's not the mises caucus which i absolutely love and i love the work and everything else they do but it's hey guys we're over here we're pushing we got a vehicle now and it is absolutely divorced of anything that is quote unquote you know a, a monopolization of violence and force and coercion from the government coolest thing ever to be a part of so thank you guys for being a part of it thank you guys for being with me here on radical man i mean you guys are an absolute amazing group and with all the bands and and everything else that's going on out there uh to still be able to to get out here and teach this and speak it man what a what an absolute humbling um experience it is to to do all that kind of stuff and it looks like um you know, Reno here in a couple weeks. Like I'm trying to heal up. I've had a few setbacks with my back working too much. Um, hoping to see you guys out there. And, uh, I'm super, super excited about that too. We're going to, we're going to cross worlds. We're going to shake it up and we are going to decentralize this bastard and get the fighters out front very soon. doesn't mean there's not a place for all those people that, um, have helped, you know, make sure that we got ballot access and everything else. Like it's just, we're changing a little bit. We're putting some fighters up front. 
Um, and those fighters are going to start laying heavy waste to the tyrants and the people out there that um, have been lukewarm, to say the least. So we got we to gotta start thinking about turning the page here in our way forward. And uh, I'm excited about all of it. So at any rate, until next time when we read part five of Bitcoin is not democratic. I love you. I need you. Peace. Um, don't hurt people and don't take their stuff.